Uh, we'll be in the book of Philippians today, and as always, and I've said this the last couple times, this is not simply a formality. We, before we jump into a text, you want to understand the context. That's the main rule of studying the Bible. You have to understand the context, what went before, what went after it. And I keep bringing that up, not simply because you know, I think it'll bring light to the sermon, but in your own personal study, I'm trying to set an example of how we ought to read Scripture reverently and understanding the big picture as well, like the bird's eye view, as well as the worm's eye view. And so when I go through the context of this stuff, it's not like, okay, the real sermon hasn't begun. This is stuff that will bring light to the rest of the sermon. And so let's look at the book of Philippians, which was started by the Apostle Paul, and we see that recorded in the book of Acts uh, um, by Luke in the book of Acts in chapter 16, where Paul, after he had gone into Macedonia, and after that he went to Philippi, and what he found there was there was no synagogue. And so that was his normal tradition to preach the gospel through the synagogues. But he found a group of women who were praying by the lake or by the river. One of them, Lydia, was a worshiper of God and she heard, she knew about God and she heard the teachings of the apostles, but her eyes were opened to the truth where she realized, I don't want to just know about God, I want to know the living God. And she was transformed by the Spirit of God as she heard the gospel from the apostles. That's how this church started. And from there, we see all types of issues in Philippi. It was actually one of the best churches that Paul wrote to, but it was still an ordinary church. There was instability in leadership, as well as the congregation. There was, it seems, there was some deep sorrow that many of the people there were going through. Harshness of spirit a lot of anxiety, some who failed to take prayer seriously, others who were just so troubled in their spirit and in their mind, some who had filled their minds with all types of wrong things, some people were not trusting God, others were not thankful. Again, it was a normal church, and it was still a good church, but it was full of up-and-down Christians. And so in our passage, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, Paul is going to call the church, he uses the language, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. That's how it, what he's going to teach on after this. Or another way to think about it is how can a congregation be spiritually stable? How can we not be so up and down? How can we not crumble under temptation and suffering? How can we hold our position when we are under attack? That's the language there. It's military language. The dominating idea in this section of nine verses is to stand firm in the Lord or spiritual stability. He knew what this church was going through. He knew they were up and down Christians, and he wants to teach them how to be spiritually stable through it all. And that's like a scary thing I've prayed for, and maybe God is answering right now. You know, I, I, I have a hard time singing that song at the beginning where it's like, Lord, come and make us humble. That is a very scary thing to pray for. But that is, you know, what I have been praying for, and I don't want to be so up and down. I want to be more spiritually stable. I wish I wasn't so thrown off easily. Every little thing that comes into my life, you know, it might be the tiniest little thing, and immediately I catastrophize it, and I'm thrown off. And so Paul here... You know, and that's why I always related to the Apostle Peter, right? He's just sort of infamous for being an up-and-down Christian. I think a lot of people can relate to Peter. But Paul here is speaking to the church, and he wants them to be more spiritually stable, to stand fast even when under attack. And so let's read Philippians chapter 4 uh, from verses 1 through 9. This is God's Word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And everything in this section is built upon this phrase, in the Lord, in the Lord. Verse 1, stand firm thus in the Lord. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. And related to this idea of being in the Lord is being in Christ Jesus, which we see in verse 7. And I want to take a detour at this point because I don't want to assume that we're all on the same page regarding what it means to be in the Lord. Everything in this section depends on us agreeing on what it means to be in the Lord. And if we don't agree to it, the rest of this passage will just be an emotional pillow that we try to rest our head upon, but there won't actually be any substance there. And so I am going to take a detour, and then it's going to be a little bit of a long detour, and then we're going to come back to this passage, but we need to talk about what it means to be in the Lord. There was a recent study done by a researcher named Christian Smith from the University of North Carolina where he found, I thought this was so interesting, in a very extensive study where he found that the faith held by most teenagers and honestly most Americans who call themselves born again came down to something they termed, and this is their term, not mine, Moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a mouthful, right? But it's a very helpful term. And now let me just quickly go over what that means and how they define it. First, there is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay? God wants people to be nice, good, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God needs to resolve a problem and good people go to heaven when they die. Those are the main tenets of what I'll call just MTD now for short. These are self-proclaimed Christians who say, I, you know, I believe there's a God and stuff. And it's a moral approach to life, being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible, work on your self-improvement, self-actualization, take care of one's health. How do you be successful at your work? That's MTD. It's about being nice. Religion is about being nice. Faith is about being good. You're not even allowed to have strong theological convictions. And notice what's missing is there's no repentance from sin, there's no faithfulness through suffering, there's no hell, there's no wrath, there's no justice, there's no holiness, there's no fear of God who is a judge. It's about God's love, people feeling happy, good, secure, at peace, be able to resolve your problems, can get along with other people. And this type of God is not involved in the personal affairs of his people. This God, the God of this faith, keeps a safe distance This God is more interested in solving our problems and making us happy. He's our cosmic butler or our cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of all of our problems as they arise. Professionally, he helps his people to feel better about themselves, but he is not a sovereign ruler. He doesn't get too involved. It's about the sovereignty of self. And especially in this therapeutic age, ideas of sin and evil are discarded because they're not actually helpful to self-actualization, meeting your full potential. And it's a religion of self-improvement. Now, MTD, to be clear, is not an organized religion, but I would say it has millions and millions of followers because it does nothing to challenge the self-centered assumptions of our modern age. There's no cost There's no discipleship. There's no cross. God is radically undemanding. He is radically tolerant. And this masquerades itself as Christianity, yet it's a faith with no demands, and it's a distortion. And it's taken root in so many. 
Because the difficulty with this is that a follower of moralistic therapeutic deism may consider themselves to be religious and even Christian. But their faith has no belief or connection to historical Christianity, which is centered upon the historical truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In Jude 3, he writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And it revolves around this question of, do you actually believe Jesus rose from the dead? That's the question. Do you believe in the resurrection? You know, I believe all the morals that Jesus taught, and I'm trying to follow all that other stuff. No, do you believe that he died on the cross, he rose again, and that is a historical event? It doesn't matter if you want it to work if it's not true. Moralistic therapeutic deism is not Christianity. What I just put up is not Christianity. That is not the gospel. It's a false religion masquerading itself as Christianity. That is not what we're raising our children to aim for. We are not trying to raise up moral children who will just be happy and live the American dream. That is not the aim of our children's ministry, what we're going over right now. And everything I'm going to say in the rest of the sermon won't hold up if this is your faith. It's just, it's just going to get, be a quick emotional pillow for you, and then it'll just die. To be in the Lord means first we agree on who the Lord is, who Jesus is, what he did for us. And we agree on who we are and what we're deserving of. And we believe that the only way who we are can be reconciled with who God is, is through the cross. You know, scripture, when it talks about us, it's, it's not flattering. You know, maybe we like to think if I'm reading Psalm 23, like I'm like an eagle, you know, I, I could describe myself in all these amazing terms. Scripture at our best describes us as sheep. And my life verse, Isaiah 53, 6, even about sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's what sheep do. We wander away. It's so easy for us to wander away because we're sheep. We're prone to wander. That's the only reason I think that song has survived for the generations. We all love that phrase, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. It's not a flattering picture of us. Enemies, we are enemies, ungodly, sinners, weak. And chances are that our own assessment or our assessment for our own capacity for evil and sin is way too small. We are worse than we think. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But while we were helpless, while we had no strength, while we were wandering, while we were powerless, while we were totally unable to free ourselves from sin, while we were enemies of God, hostile with God, at our absolute worst, Christ loved us. It wasn't after you cleaned yourself up. It wasn't after you came to church and let me, you know, let me get in a better state. Then I'll come before God. While we were still sinners, four key words, Christ died for us. And if you doubt the gravity of your sin, the seriousness of your sin, then you need to take a look at the cross where it took the death of God's son to put away your sins. On the cross, there hung a man who was absolutely perfect without sin. Why did he have to die? Because the more serious the crime, the more serious the penalty that needs to be paid. 
Because of our sin, he was dying the death that we deserve, bearing the punishment that was due to us, taking the sting of death in his own body, taking hell on the cross. On the cross, God executed the punishment that our sins deserved, and he put it upon his sinless son. Our substitute. And after three days, he rose again from the dead, and Jesus proved that he had conquered death and our sin. And that's why we do baptisms. You go into the water representing how you have died to yourself. And you come out of the water representing that you have newness of life. Understand the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's not a call to try and go save yourself and clean, your up, clean yourself up. It's a declaration that God has done it all. And what I'm saying to you now is that the gospel message is not condemnation. It's an invitation to come to the one who hung upon that cross. Because Paul says in Romans, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who is in the Lord by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus, they will be saved. That's what it means to be in the Lord. And so maybe you're like Lydia by the river. You want to know about God. You, you want to worship God. You want to be into this religion type of stuff. But you have to hear the message that I'm sharing right now. Your eyes need to be open to the truth by the Spirit of God. And we're seeing that in our church. We're seeing that in our church. People just wondering about God. People interested in God. And their eyes are being opened. God in His mercy and his grace is showing you how much sin, how devastating sin is, and the necessity of his grace. And that's the opportunity that he is giving you, the opportunity of faith and to be reconciled to God. You got to press into that if that's where you are. That's the spirit of God pressing on your heart. And if you feel like you're seeing sin as ugly, Scripture is coming alive to you, Christ is becoming beautiful to you, that's God working in your life. Then, and only then, are you in the Lord. Then and only then is the concept of God not simply an emotional pillow where I just, I just go to him to quickly resolve my problems and I'll get on with the rest of my life. But it's an awe, reverence, and life rearranging fear and trust in who he is. That's saving faith. Then and only then are you in Christ. No, it almost feels like I, should, I can just end the sermon on that. But we're not even in our passage yet. <laughs> so let's talk about our passage now. But we can't have any assumptions. First, are you in the Lord? Are you in Christ? Then the rest of this passage applies to you. And so if you are in the Lord, the first thing for spiritual stability is to agree in the Lord, agree in the Lord. And verse 2 to 3 talks about this, where there was arguments and disunity that was breaking out into the church. We don't know why these women were arguing, but we know their disagreements were enough for Paul to mention them by name, who was, and he's writing from prison all the way from Rome. Okay, it's gone all the way to him. There was some kind of in-house fighting, and he makes it clear, these are Christians, these are Christians who are fighting, and their names were written in the book of life, but unfortunately, they're also written in the book of Philippians, Euodia and Syntyche. And here was a church, and it's a reminder for us, for us here is a church that takes the Bible seriously, the gospel is being preached, and before, because of that, right before this section, they, he mentions they have enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross are coming out them, they have challenges from the outside, but here... It's a reminder that we could be so concerned to stand fast against the world, the potential evil from the world, that we forget of the world, the war within. And if you constantly have a list of people you have problems with in the church, 
all these people that you can't get along with. I understand. But is your name at the top of the list? We need to be careful when we have a list of other members who are the problem without our name being at the top. We need to be careful when we are more in touch with someone else's sins than ours. We need to be careful when we see others as the enemy and we fail to see the enemy within. This was clearly having an impact on the entire church as these believers failed to humble themselves for the sake of the gospel. And unity is a gospel issue. Earlier in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 verse 27 through 28, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I would argue this is the theme verse of Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the gospel cause, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. One pastor named Alistair Begg, he says, disharmony within will lead to defeat without. When God's people can't bear the sight of each other, they will not be able to look the world in the face. In order to contend for the gospel against all enemies and attacks from the outside, there can't be a serious flaw or chink in our own armor. There can't be holes in our ranks. We need to close the ranks. We need to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Division saps the energy of the church where seeds of bitterness spread within a church family. And it's not just individually you need to stand, but corporately, collectively we need to stand together in one spirit for the gospel cause. Paul wasn't, he's so concerned by the breaking of this unity, and he says, agree in the Lord. You are in the Lord. You are His. And he reminded them earlier in chapter 2, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, I look at this verse, and do I really feel like I can champion my own rights? I could take hold of my rights. When later in the section it says, Christ did not even take hold of his rights. Can I really fight for my own cause or my own name? I'll hold on to my rights. No, we are in the Lord. Romans chapter 15 verse 1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We can't insist on our own way when we belong to a Savior who never insisted on his own way. We follow Jesus Christ who humbled himself. How can we say, I'm not going to humble myself? We don't please ourselves. It's about pleasing God. Therefore, serve your brother or sister. Prefer him or her. Build him or her up. Agree in the Lord. Moving on to chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And this is the verse that makes me think I had to talk about MTD because this is where MTD really just fails. Rejoice in the Lord. Not only that, rejoice in the Lord always. That's the hard word here. And then he repeats it again. I will say it again. Rejoice. That repetition is for emphasis. When life is good, rejoice. When circumstances are bad, rejoice. When things are lining up, rejoice. As Christians, we are called to rejoice in both good times and bad times. Is that really obtainable? 
How can we do that? Quoting Alistair Begg again, and you guys are going to, I'm sure, hear over the next couple months. I, I like Pastor Alistair Begg. I consider him my friend because I had lunch with him one time. And, um, <laughs> and he obviously won't remember me, but I got to have lunch with him face-to-face when he was in town. And if you don't know who he is, he's just a well-known pastor. But I uh, just don't want to put him on a pest or anything. But, you know, makes me feel like I know people. Um, but... Uh, quoting him, he says, now the reason we get into such, and he's talking about Philippians chapter 4, rejoice. Now the reason we get into such difficulty with this notion, I think, is because we tend to think of joy in the same incorrect way that we tend to think about love. Namely, that we think of love as a victim of our emotions rather than being a servant of our wills. That's a great line. I never could have came up with that. A victim of our emotions rather than being a servant of our wills. So that the notion of love is something that no one can command. So nobody should say you must love because we say, well, we can't turn it on or off. We are only the victim of whatever is sloshing around us or within us. And in the same way, joy is completely determined by external factors over which we have no control. And therefore, how could anybody encourage us to rejoice in the Lord always? Isn't that true? Our society talks mainly about love as a feeling. You fall in love. Love is in the air. It's like catching a virus. It's like something passive, something that happens to you. You fall in. You fall out. You think, one day I'll meet this perfect person who will be absolutely perfect, and I'll be bursting in feelings of love for them. Never any doubts, never any bad days, never times when they make you angry. We're in love, and we all know that's, that's just trash. That's not going to last. Rejoicing in the Lord is hard because we think our feelings will control it, but it starts with what you think about. You are what you think. The Bible does emphasize that. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Our feelings are not isolated from our thinking, but must be guided by them. Feelings can't be separated from thinking and doing, but must be formed by them. The world says we must empty our minds in order to have peace, but the Bible says you have to fill your mind with the truth of God, which is pure and noble. Our thinking is so often overruled by our feelings, and that's the result of sin. And therefore, you can only rejoice when life is good. The only time you're happy is when something good is happening, happening to you. But if you start not with your feelings, but what you know to be true of God, then it is possible to be content in all situations. That's what he says later in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. He knows how to suffer. And I know how to bound. He knows how to be content even in, in prosperous seasons. In any, in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And let me add a very important clarifier here. I don't think we'll ever have full and exclusive joy in this life. You know, the reason why the older and older someone gets, the reason why we wait for eternity, the reason why the Bible calls us to look to heaven is that there's always going to be a brokenness and disconnect, disconnect in this life when it comes to joy. We'll never be able to fully and perfectly take hold of true joy. We live in a world that is broken physically, spiritually, and the sorrow and sin of other people will always make this life tainted by sorrow. Romans 8.23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. Our bodies are broken. That means this age will be marked by sorrow and weeping. 
And Romans 12.25 says, weep with those who weep. There will always be weeping in this life because the more you love, the more you will weep when they are weeping. And so let's not oversimplify this talk about rejoicing the Lord. The same person who rejoiced in the Lord also said in Romans 9.1, speaking about his desire to see Israel saved, Romans 9.1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And the difficulty of this life is as we fight for joy, that joy will always be side by side with sorrow. Proverbs 14.13 says, Even in laughter the heart may ache. And the end of joy may be grief. Isn't that profound? I think we can understand that. We can't expect to have full and constant and complete joy in Christ in this age. That will only come after this age has passed and we are made complete and perfect. That's what we wait for. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for. We know it's coming. And so we take joy in that now. But there's this strange connection here between joy and gentleness. When we have joy in the Lord, it produces gentleness. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Is it, I always felt like, what is this verse doing here? If you take it out, it just flows so much better. But it makes sense that joyful people are free and gentle people or joyful people are reasonable. They know the Lord is near. What does that mean? I think there's two things this implies. First, it's just how would you be, how would you act if you were in God's presence? Would you be biting back at every person who hurts you? The spiritually stable Christian is gentle because they know God is near, his presence is here. But secondly, Paul is always thinking about end times, and the Lord is coming. His return is near, and when he comes, he will come for the broken and contrite in heart, and they will be comforted because when he comes, he will be the righteous judge. And he'll make right every wrong. There will be no wrong that will be swept under the rug. Romans 12, verse 17 says, repay no one for evil. How do we, how do we not repay anyone for evil? But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love this verse because I use this in counseling a lot. As far as it depends on you, recognizing your limitation, live peaceably with all. How can we not repay someone evil for evil? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And if the righteous judge is going to come back and put everything right, we don't have to sit in the judge's chair in every situation or circumstance. It's not our job to be the judge in every situation. There's only one person who should be in the judge's chair, and that's God. And this passage is saying, get out of his chair. Recognize your limitations, recognize who the judge is, and be joyful and be gentle. I got some good pastoral advice when I was back in seminary where a pastor, he was sharing that if you're ever in a situation, if you're not sure, like say a counseling situation where you're not sure if you should be like rebuking or judging versus being gracious, always err on the side of grace. Rejoice in the Lord. Be gentle in the Lord. Third, pray in the Lord or trust in the Lord, whatever you want to put, okay? Trust in the Lord. Verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we're spiritually struggling or we're not spiritually stable, Paul mentions two things to do here. Pray and be thankful. Prayer and thanksgiving. But here's the difficult word that comes up again in this passage. Don't be anxious. That would be hard enough. But don't be anxious about anything. 
Let's be honest. If I give you a piece of paper and I ask you to write down all the things you've been anxious about this week, it would probably be a pretty long list. My list would be very long. And here the Word of God is saying, don't be anxious about anything. And what happens more naturally to me is that anxiety or life circumstances pushes out my faith and I retreat into a corner where I feel suffocated rather than bringing my suffering to God in prayer. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish that wasn't my instinct. It's more my instinct to literally pace around, pace around. Or it's my instinct to go in problem-solving mode. I go into God mode, my best imitation of God, where I rack my brain, I trust myself, I lean on my own understanding. But we need to recognize that so much of our problem-solving mode is rooted in our pride. We fail to recognize that we're not God. We can't change hearts. We can't save people. We're not the Savior. That's hard because oftentimes it's rooted in a good love for people. But in our pride, we just want to be their Savior instead of pointing them to the true Savior. One of my favorite prayers in the entire Bible is from this weak, insecure king named King Jehoshaphat. And he was facing an overwhelming army, army that was going to overrun him in Israel. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 2, Uh, Verse 3, it says, Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek him from the Lord, to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And this second part is my favorite prayer in the entire Bible. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. Here it is. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So often in our pride and self-sufficiency, we think we know what to do, but life throws at us situations where you can't do anything. You can't do anything. And we say, oh, I'll just pray. I'll just pray as if it's like just prayer. No, pray. That's childlike faith. No sophistication, no independence, just humility and dependence upon the Lord. You can't fix it. Instead, you have to learn how to cope is by entrusting it to him and then sleeping. You entrust it to the Lord and then you rest. Now, easier said than done. Prayer is not some magical quick fix formula. If I'm being honest, there are plenty of times where I pray and I don't experience this peace that surpasses understanding. There are times, even this week, where I'm sitting there and I'm praying and I don't feel better afterwards. George Swinnick, I don't know who he is, but I just like this quote. I don't know where I got it from. It was an old sermon. says, prayer is the key that opens great treasury, God, um, that opens God's treasury, but faith is the hand that grasps his infinite bounty. I like this quote because it recognizes that prayer opens the door, but it's faith that helps you take hold of the freedom that you have in Christ. It's not a magic formula. You have freedom, but you have to take hold of it. That's what Paul says to the Galatians. It is for freedom that you have been set free. Why does it, it seems repetitive. It seems redundant. Why does he have to say you're free, but take hold of the freedom? We know. We're free, but we don't take hold of it. Prayer without trust or prayer without a desperate fight for trust doesn't free you. If you're not bringing things to the true God in Christ and the promises of God and the character of God and bringing all that into view, prayer will not free you. It's not just some emotional pillow to help you cope. It has to be communion with our God. It's fighting for your faith. And I always think of the picture of Jacob in Genesis where it literally says he encountered God. And he says, I, he wrestled with him all night 
all night. And he says, I am not going to let you go, God, until you bless me. And when did he bless him? In his greatest moment of weakness. That's how prayer is. Sometimes it's like, I'm not there. I'm not there. I'm not going to let go, though. I'm going to keep fighting. And when we pray, one of the things God gives us is perspective. It puts God back into the picture. Just bringing your hopes and fears and concerns and questions before God almost immediately forces you to think differently. Imagine you're in a valley. You see all the hills. You see all the obstacles. You see everything getting in the way of you, and you're overwhelmed. You see all the problems and the pitfalls. A prayer takes you to the perspective from the cliff, from the top, where you get the clearest view, where you see where you've been coming from, all these different things, where you're going. It helps reorient you to God, and it gives you an eternal heavenly perspective. And one of the main perspectives it'll give you is that of thanksgiving. A thankful heart. A heart that recognizes that by God's grace, we're always doing better than we deserve. That's a hard phrase if Christianity is just some side religion for you. But by God's grace, we are always doing better than we deserve. It gives you a heart that is not entitled, a heart that says God knows what he's doing. I'm, I'm confused, I'm anxious, I'm worried. But God, I know you have my best interest in mind. A thankful heart doesn't ask, why is this happening to me? A thankful heart knows that God is our Father. He always acts with purpose, and He is always acting for our good. Notice it doesn't say that if you pray thankfully and faithfully and humbly, He'll answer the way you want Him to answer. It doesn't say if you make a request known to God, God will answer the way you want. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything about what the answer will look like, but it does say that God will give you peace. And this is a gift from God to the one who prays thankfully and faithfully to the one who has a humble heart, who has a living relationship with the true Lord, who desires to be agreeable and peaceable, the one who demands nothing of God and yet pours out everything to him. God, in response to that kind of heart, grants peace, true peace, calm. It's not to the one who trusts himself, but the humble. Not the one who's going to go around trying to fix everything and create their own heaven on earth, or this perfect world. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's not rational. It's not even human. It won't make sense. You can't get this from men. You can't get this from each other. You can't be so dependent on a man or a woman or whoever where you think I could get this from them. No counselor, no person, no, no one can give you this. You get this from the God of peace. And when we experience God's love and power, when we understand that God is in control, then all my anxieties and struggles are brought before the God of peace. And he gives peace to guard your heart and your mind. From what? Anxiety, doubt, fear, dissatisfaction, discontentment. He will guard. He will stand over you and protect your mind and your heart. Let me close with this verse. I've got a little more, actually. I don't want to juke you guys out. I've got a little more to go. All right. But this will be the, you know, starting the landing. Pastor's trick, righteous trick, okay? Um, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And the reason I'm reading this verse is it says, strive, labor with me in your prayers. And Paul, it's basically Paul acknowledging it doesn't come easy. But labor, strive, work, sweat with me in prayer. 
And I hope I have given absolutely no indication in this sermon that everything I'm saying is easy. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Think upon the Lord. Pray in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. All of that is labor and fighting. It doesn't come naturally. But it's a daily desperation for the truth of God to be made real. Daily. Not even daily. Minute by minute. People ask me, how am I doing? Well, it depends what minute you ask me. Fighting to say that no matter what life throws at me, I choose to hold on to and rejoice in the Lord. Not just a mental exercise, not a mental faith, a spiritual fight where the word of God revives our soul. It has to be truth on fire. And let me simplify this as much as possible. Maybe overly simplify it. Here's the fight for joy. Here are these key words, and this is not some linear formula, but the more and more your life is characterized by these things, the more and more you'll be living by the Spirit and you will have joy. You will have freedom. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I'm just going to say like one sentence or two about these. Acknowledge, pray, trust, act, wait, think. Again, it's not linear. But begin each day acknowledging that you are absolutely helpless to do anything apart from Christ. Jesus said himself, you could do nothing. You cannot bear any spiritual fruit apart from me. Apart from the enablement and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge your helplessness and then pray for the Spirit to help you. Pray and ask, God, help me in my unbelief. Give me faith. You have to pray and ask for help. And then you have to trust. You got to believe in God's promises that even, God, your word says I can overcome this sin. I don't see it. I don't see it. But you have promised it. And so I want to trust it that I am not a slave to sin. And after you have acknowledged your helplessness, prayed for his help, trusted in his promises, you have to act in doing. You have to discipline yourself. You have to fight to do what you know is right. And then wait. Trust in the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to work in his timing. You don't throw out your faith if you don't change overnight. You have to be patient like a farmer. Christ-likeness is gradual in its working. Fruit doesn't pop up overnight. We can't understand exactly how the Spirit works in his timing, but we need to trust that he will deliver us. One of the ways we fight for joy, one of the keys is to wait for him. And when you have those sweet moments of victory where you resist a temptation or you see fruit shown in your life, you thank God because he is the one that enabled you to do so. I'm just going to read a couple passages to close. And I just find them I see the fight for joy in these passages, and so I hope they'll encourage you. And so we'll close with these two passages. Psalm chapter 40, verse 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And lastly, Habakkuk 3, 16 through 18 says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy 
and the God of my salvation. Savior Church, may the peace of God be with you all. Let's pray. Father, um, your word says that what you have, we have heard, learned and received and heard, we have to practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace, you will be with us. But we have to practice these things. We have to live out these things. But that's so hard, God. It's so hard. This world is so broken. But we want to come to you humbly in our brokenness and say, God, we are, we are so helpless. We're so weak. But we pray that in our weakness, you would give grace and your grace would empower us. And we were saved in our helplessness. And every day, we can only be sanctified in our helplessness. But your word also says that you have given us your spirit, that you have given us your word, you have given us your community. And that we are more than conquerors through Christ. And so help us to believe, help us to trust, help us to take hold of those promises. And to live not in slavery, but in righteousness. God, I pray that this sermon will be lived out. Not just head knowledge, but it would be transformation. So we thank you for the grace you have shown us in the Lord. We thank you for the forgiveness that we've received in the Lord. And we pray that because of your kindness, it would continue to lead us to repentance, to freedom, to holiness. that we would seek after you. God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so would you help us? Would you save us? Would you free us? And may you, the God of peace, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.